Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. For anyone following the rapidly evolving area of legal technology, today's guest will be a familiar voice. Bob Ambrogi, lawyer, journalist, media consultant, and blogger, has been working at the intersection of law, media, and technology for 40 years. He's known internationally for his expertise in legal technology, legal practice, and legal ethics. He's won numerous awards for his blog and his leading role on the cutting edge of change in the industry, including being named to Fast Case 50 and Legal Rebel Trailblazers. Before entering the blogosphere, Bob was an editor at a number of mainstream legal publications. In today's conversation, we'll talk about Bob's journey as a journalist, his views on the current state of mainstream media, the potential of regulatory reform to further disrupt the industry, and the growing diversity of the legal technology industry. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening. Hey, Bob, how are you? Hey, how are you? It's nice to finally meet. I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. I feel like we know each other, even though we've never met before. Yeah, well, likewise, it's good to meet you. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for joining. The number of things you were first at in the industry, I could go on forever. We'll put it all in the show notes. I want to spend most of our time today talking about your views of legal technology and emergence in the business and and trend lines you see. But I actually want to start slightly off kilter a little bit for what we normally talk about in the podcast. Uh, You've been involved in the media for a long time. Your practice involves First Amendment cases and representing media outlets. And I'm just curious, we've been through a part of our history over the last five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years of increasing polarization and attacks on the media, uh, the lame street media, whatever. And I'm curious what your reaction that has been as an expert in media law and as a journalist yourself. What has that done to the free press and the ability to disseminate information honestly? You know, it, it's uh, it's been a challenging time for the mainstream press, for the traditional press, uh, whatever you want to call it, from a number of vantage points, not just the attacks on the press, but uh, the press isn't doing itself a whole lot of favors with some of what's happening in, in the business of the news media these days. And actually, my principal work with the media is currently is as a lobbyist. So I, I represent the news media in the state legislature here in Massachusetts, where I am, and sometimes on federal matters. And I've been doing this for, I don't even remember, maybe maybe close to 15 years now as a lobbyist. And, and it, it used to be that when you walked into the legislature and said, I am here on behalf of the news media, people stopped and paid attention, almost, you know, stood up and saluted. Uh, and and it's, got, it's gotten so you feel there isn't the same level of respect for the media uh, among legislators that there used to be from the traditional media. And, you know, that that's too bad. You know, I, I don't know what, I don't have the answers. I, I don't know how we resolve this, but I like to think that you know, fair thinking people still understand that uh, an objective press is critical to our democracy. And uh, I, I believe that uh, that will continue to be the case. You know, paper will go away. The, 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 the way the news is delivered may, may evolve over time. America, I think I'm an example of that insofar as uh, in terms of my own blogging. But the importance of an independence media is not going to go away. And I don't really think that's ever going to change. 
for those of us looking in from the outside, it becomes difficult to find trusted sources of information because, I mean, I, I tend to rely on the New York Times and the Washington Post as my general outlets, but others would say that they are left-wing propaganda outlets. And finding an objective source of information is difficult. Yeah. And this is actually a conversation uh, that, that's been happening almost since the early days of the Internet. I remember uh, when I first started writing about lawyers using the Internet, something I would hear from lawyers frequently is, well, how do I know that I can trust what's on the Internet? How do I know what's on the Internet is, is, is real? Even if I see a court decision on the Internet, how do I know that's the actual court decision? Somebody didn't tamper with it. And, you know, trust is something that gets built up over time and that gets earned. And like you, I, I read the Washington Post and the New York Times every day and I read the Boston Globe every day. And I have come to believe that I can trust those sources. And it's the same with, with any media. Uh, in my own blog, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and I have readers who tell me that they read my blog because they feel they can trust what I'm reporting. Yeah, that's why I read it. So it's, it's earned. Trust is earned, you know? Yeah, no, that's right. You've had a very, you've had a fascinating career. You did start in the early stages of technology boom, writing about technology and the law. How did your journey get you to be at the beginning of, of many of these waves? Yeah. Before the word boom would ever have been used, applied, been applied to it, I think. My background was in journalism. I, I, I was one of the, uh, a, a sort of crazy person who went to law school not to be a lawyer, but to advance my career in journalism. That's why I went to law school in the first place. I did end up practicing law for a while, and then I, I fell back into journalism pretty early on. I was the uh, editor of a legal newspaper here in Massachusetts, and then uh, kind of moved up through various positions, was a, one of the top editors at American Lawyer Media in New York when it was still called American Lawyer Media. But early on, it was really more almost an avocation. I started playing around on the internet in the days when the internet was a purely text-based interface before the days of the web. I remember those days. Before there was a graphical, yeah, I'm sure. Before there was a graphical interface to access. And pretty much when, when the web, after, you know, what was it, 1992 or so, when the web kind of started to become mainstream uh, and the graphical interface to the internet started to become more common, I just really felt that lawyers were missing out on uh, something that had the potential to really disrupt law practice. And I started writing at first a, a column that I syndicated out to bar publications and, and uh, private commercial uh, legal newspapers about the Internet. And that turned into some other publications. And here I am many years later, still still doing that. Yeah, you've created an enormous reservoir of incredible information between your blogs and your podcast and your writings. It's been a tremendous influence on the industry. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for saying that. I appreciate it. So you start off writing because you think lawyers are missing the boat. I should add there wasn't much of a boat to miss at that point, but I, I, I think the potential. <laughs> well, that's, that's a fair enough. I can remember being on our firm's first technology committee and we we're debating whether to have buy 28 byte computers or th wait for the 35. I've gotten the numbers wrong. It's been way too long. There wasn't much of a boat to miss compared to where it is today. But the movement of technology into the profession has always seemed slow to me. Maybe it's not missing the boat, but it's sort of the dynamic you talk about, the lawyers being skeptical about how they can trust the information. Have you seen the same dynamic or has the pace been about what you would have expected? 
That's sort of the common wisdom is that the legal profession has been slow to adopt technology. And I think it's more a matter of there having been the avant-garde in the legal profession and the followers and, and, and those who are trailing behind in the legal profession. I mean, again, certainly in the early days of the Internet and really even before the Internet, the adoption of technology was something that was happening fairly widely. You know, I, I like to make the point that one of the first ever web browsers that was developed was developed by the Legal Information Institute, by Tom Bruce at the Legal Information Institute. And it was so that legal professionals would have an application in order to access court information and other information on the Internet. This was before, you know, Netscape Navigator or whatever the early uh, browsers were. So there, there was always this sort of, you know, avant-garde of, of, of legal professionals who were using the Internet early on and using technology early on. And it tended to be smaller firms. It tended to be lawyers who didn't have the resources of a big firm and, and who saw it as a way of leveling the playing field, of, of getting access to information and resources for free because everything was free on the internet in those days. And, you know, I, I think the slowness in adopting the technology was really the, the, the slowness in it sort of permeating across all aspect, all sectors of, of the legal community. You know, I, I think larger firms were smaller. I mean, your, your firm obviously had a reputation of being more, uh, again, on the sort of avant-garde and being a leader, but not all firms were the same way. And just the established bar itself was probably the biggest obstacle, I think. There, there was, you know, we know that there was just this enormous fear by the established bar that somehow technology posed a threat to the traditional model of delivering legal services and in the tradition, in particular, the traditional business model of delivering legal services. And I, I think a lot of uh, leaders of the bar, you know, tended to be older, uh, more established lawyers were, were frankly fearful of technology and saw it as a threat to their livelihoods. And I think that that was one of the greatest obstacles that we faced. Have those obstacles eased? In your mind, there certainly has been an explosion in the legal technology startup phase and in the tools available. As new generations have come in, has that dynamic changed? Oh, I think it's changed dramatically. I mean, I, I think the last decade has really been one of perhaps the greatest upheaval in, in the legal profession, you know, in the entire history of there being uh, legal professionals. You know, to me, one of the one of the greatest examples uh, or signs of that is what's happening in, in regulatory reform in this country, which it's not technology, but it's driven. I think what's happening, the changes that are happening in regulatory reform are largely driven by technology and driven by the recognition that there need to be more efficient ways of delivering legal services in order to meet the unmet needs of legal services. And even that is happening slowly, but it's happening. And what's, what's fascinating is the fact that it's being driven with some of the most uh, significant initiatives of the last few years, Arizona, uh, Utah, being driven by the justices of their Supreme Courts. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. Those would have been the people who would have been the biggest obstructionists 10, 20 years ago, I think. And they're the ones who are seeing perhaps more directly than, than others because they're seeing the impact on their own courts of pro se litigants flooding the courts and not getting the legal help they need and the representation they need. So I think they're the ones who are really seeing the need more clearly than, than a lot of practicing lawyers are. Yeah, it's um, it's such an interesting dynamic, isn't it? 
And I think it was Suskin who said he, you need to see courts as a service and not a place. Right. And yeah. we had Lucy Ricca, who at the time was head of the Office of Innovation in Utah. And she was talking about the vision by the Chief Justice and by the members of the Supreme Court. And I found that to be a fascinating dynamic. You wouldn't expect that, frankly, in Utah or Arizona, more conservative states. Well, again, I think they're more conservative states, but they're also large states with rural populations, you know, not as many lawyers as a New York or Massachusetts or California or Illinois. And and I mean, Utah, what was it? Something like, you know, well, I, I think actually Utah probably mirrors the rest of the country insofar as the, the numbers of unrepresented litigants doing 70 or 80 percent of the cases in the Utah courts are have at least one party that has no lawyer uh, representing them. So the need is just huge. Where do you see this regulatory trend going? We've seen the sandbox in Utah and the Arizona skipped over the sandbox and just uh, loosened up restrictions. And you've got Oregon making some moves. Where do you see the trend lines moving for regulatory reform? Yeah, I, I know that I thought we were moving a little bit more quickly on this, actually. But I, I, I think the way we are moving is eventually in the direction that, that Utah, I mean, that, that Arizona has already gone to and that Utah has more or less effectively gone to, which is, I believe that eventually every state in the United States is going to drop the prohibition against non-lawyer ownership of legal practices and uh, will allow alternative legal service providers it just seems inevitable. I don't think the rationale for the rule uh, is really clear anymore. And I think, again, the, the biggest reason the rule persists is that there have been these sectors of the bar that fear the impact on their own practices and their own businesses. But I, I think with, with Arizona and Utah's example, those dominoes are going to start to fall pretty quickly over the next decade or so. What needs to happen to make that occur? Do we need a California or a New York or an Illinois, a bigger sort of industrial state to go down that road? I don't know anymore. I used to think that. I used to, I used to think it was going to take California doing it and that then everybody else would just kind of fall in line. Again, what's fascinating about the example with Utah and Arizona is, as you said earlier, they're, they're perhaps two of the states that you would have least expected to be leading the way on this. Although Arizona had actually had a number, both, both Arizona and Utah had done other initiatives over the years. So. And that's fair. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't know that we need to have one of the big states. Maybe other states start to follow. I mean, I, I, I think really what has to happen is for us to start to get some of the data out of these states. And both states are collecting data on these alternative legal services providers. And I, I think that data is going to tell the story. It's going to tell us whether this is working or not. You know, one of the first big experiments was the uh, Washington State's experiment with the limited license legal technicians, which they ended up shutting down after a few years. And I think one of the, the failures of that program was the, the failure to set up a structure that would keep track of what was happening uh, with the triple LTs and whether that program was at all successful. And it was a modest program that was underfunded to begin with. But I, I think Utah and, and Arizona offer the opportunity for us to see, can these programs really make a difference? Are there going to be people who are hurt by these programs or, or suffer in some way or, or who are poorly represented because of them? You know, the, the answers in the data, I think. 
Let me sort of change topics a little bit and talk about legal technology and sort of your view on it. I know, at least I believe you just were speaker at the ABA Tech Show. If I well, I didn't speak. I ran the. Uh, I run a, every year a uh, Startup Alley program there, so I moderated the opening night Startup Alley, where uh, fifteen legal tech startups compete against each other for the honors of winning first place. Who won? Uh, interesting. The the one that won is a, a company called Turn Signal, which is a uh, application. It's a consumer facing application to address the issue of traffic stops by police. And uh, essentially, it's an app that uh, if you get stopped by a police officer, you can pull out this app and immediately connect with an attorney by video while you're sitting there in your car and hopefully, you know, bring this situation to a peaceful resolution. Isn't that fascinating? What did you learn from it? Was this the first time you've been back live to tech show since the pandemic? Yeah. What was that experience like? Was that a little eerie or was it refreshing? It was refreshing. I went to ABA Tech Show and then I went from there the following week to uh, Legal Week in New York. So I was immersed for two weeks in live conferences after not having seen human beings in two years. And it felt just invigorating to be back with people, to be back with people who are excited, enthusiastic about technology and to be talking about it. And, you know, I don't know if you've been to tech show and legal work are kind of very different shows because tech show is much more small firm oriented. A lot of people go to tech show have been going there for 15, 20 years, know each other well. So it was almost like a family reunion, like a big family reunion, whereas legal week was more like legal week. It has always been. Both of them felt, you know, remarkably normal and uh, it was just good to be back. Yeah, I haven't been since the pandemic, but I used to go pre-pandemic days and they were always they're always fascinating just to see what people are talking about, what they're working on. Did you see any trends emerging from those conferences that were new to you? One of the interesting, I don't know if you call it a trend, uh, one of the interesting uh, aspects of ABA Tech Show this year was that it was by far the most diverse tech show I have ever seen. And I'm not talking about technology. I'm talking about the people who were there talking about technology. The numbers of women and people of color who were speakers there, who were vendors there, I think it had to have been by far the most diverse tech show I've ever been to. And I think that's reflective of the industry. You know, we, we, we've been slow in, in making much headway in terms of diversifying the legal industry broadly. And, and the legal tech industry in particular has had the same problem. You know, you probably sure you know Kristen Sunday from Paladin, who has been tracking, you know, the numbers of diverse founders of legal tech companies and the numbers continue to be dismal overall. But I think in these last couple of years, we've really seen an acceleration um, of diversity in, in the legal tech world. So I, I think that's a key one. You know, beyond that, it's it's the stuff that we've all seen over the last two years, which is that just that the pandemic has, without a doubt, accelerated the move to the cloud that was already happening. But, you know, there, there is no turning back at this point. Legal tech and the cloud are inextricably intertwined uh, at this point and, and will continue to be going forward. So, I mean, in terms of there's lots of sort of trends, more and more automation uh, of legal processes is, is a key one. Obviously, AI, that sort of thing. But, you know, the, the trends that we're seeing now are the trends that have been coming along for the past decade and then just got supercharged by the pandemic. How long will that supercharging last, Bob? I mean, we, we see it in the, the world is going to be virtual and now people are tired of the pandemic. They like being back together. 
they're talking about coming back to the office. How sticky is this? And I, I agree with you. It's an acceleration of prior trend lines before. But coming out of 08 and 09, I thought the same thing. And the accelerant died fairly quickly. Kept going, but died a little bit. How sticky is this? Well, I think many aspects of it are very sticky. The move to the cloud part of it is very sticky because that's how technology is getting built now. I mean, people aren't building on-premises technology anymore. And, and anybody who is, is, is frantically working to re-engineer their products for the cloud. So I think that's a key one. The move toward automating legal process. I mean, to me, to me, I think they're all pretty sticky. I think that the biggest question is not so much what's happening with technology or, or whether the trends we're seeing in technology will change so much as how we employ those technologies. Will we continue to have a hybrid workplace or will we go back to the office? I don't know that that's a technology issue so much as a management issue or a personnel issue. Again, that was one of the interesting uh, differences between ABA Tech Show and Legal Week was that ABA Tech Show was a hybrid conference. Legal Week was back to being an entirely in-person conference. If you weren't there, you couldn't see any of the programs. And on one hand, I can understand why they did that from the point of view of it's better for the vendors and the exhibitors and, and it's better for the people who show up at the conference. But, you know, I, I hope that doesn't indicate sort of a, a just a fallback to the way things were pre-pandemic. And, and, and now we're just going to say it, it's safe to be back together again. So let's forget everything we learned over the last two years. There's been a tendency to do that, though. That's human nature to do that. And I, like you, I hope that doesn't. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think, again, I, I think although the pandemic was an accelerant, these trends were just clearly evolving at the, at the end of 2019. And at the end of every year, I always write a post of the top trends of the year. And at the end of 2019, I wrote one of the top trends of the decade. And everything we're seeing now that's been accelerated over the last couple of years was already snowballing at that point to some extent. I mean, the move to the cloud, the, the surge of the number of legal tech startups this upheaval in legal ethics that we've been talking about, you know, the growth of AI, the, the growth of data-driven law practice, all of these trends were were firmly on their way towards accelerating. I think maybe that one of the biggest things the pandemic did is to help bring some of the lawyers who were who were uh, resisting all of this over the hump. And there were lawyers, I remember speaking to a small local bar association in, I think, 2019, not long before the pandemic, about the duty of technology competence. I was there to speak about that. And when I give that talk, I would often start my presentation with a picture of an old IBM Selectric typewriter and to reflect the fact that that was kind of the state of tech when I was a young lawyer. It was a wonderful thing when you could hit a little button and it would backspace and erase a letter you had just typed. It was like a miracle. It was a miracle, right? And uh, when I showed that to this group, I had several lawyers come up to me afterward and say, you know what? That's still what I'm using. <laughs> and I am, you know, they'll drag me to my grave before I'm going to move my office to the cloud or start using practice management platforms or anything else. And that was 2019. And I have since heard from one of those lawyers that, guess what? I was right. <laughs> he needed to move to the cloud. He needed to adopt a practice management platform. And he's just totally turned around. That was a small firm, you know, a solo lawyer, I think, this little 
little county in New York. But I think we are really over a hump in terms of lawyers' fear of technology. And again, I mentioned earlier, the organized, I mean, the organized bar has just totally embraced this. They're, they are no longer fighting it. The ABA is now leading advocate of change in the legal profession and reforming the way we deliver practice, we deliver services. And what seems to me has happened over the last few years, and I'd be curious your take on this, is what's proliferated has been the willingness to experiment with innovation in bits and pieces across it. So not trying to have one big sweeping change, but use a practice management software and figure that out or use document automation or use techniques that change parts of the brackets in, in, in bits and pieces and begin to make change incrementally faster than ever, but still change incrementally. Yeah, no, I I think that's absolutely right. But at the same time, I I think what we're seeing is one of the major trends of the last couple of years has been this move toward platformization, uh, if if you want to call it that. But this idea that in terms of the way we do our work on a day-to-day basis, it gets exhausting to be constantly changing from one application to another and one platform to another. And to the extent we can pull all of these things together in a way that fits with our workflow as legal professionals, that is much preferable. So I think that's one of the reasons we're seeing this trend toward uh, increasing platformization. Uh, We're seeing a lot of these larger legal tech companies acquiring some of these smaller innovations and trying to work them into their existing product group uh, so that they can present them to their customers as a cohesive whole that follows a more appropriate workflow. What's the client's role in all of this? How have their expectations changed or are changing in terms of their expectation of service providers and their use of technology? Uh, you would know that far better than I. Uh, but <laughs> but I mean, what, when I wrote that article in 2019 of the trends of the decade, one of the trends I talked about was the ascension of the client. Because it used to be, you know, going back pre-2008 uh, or so, uh, that the client had no role in even questioning how services were delivered. It was really a matter of, this is what I need and please do it for me. You know, defend me in this litigation or get this deal done for me or whatever else it is. And again, over the decade prior to the pandemic, gradually, I'm not even sure if gradually is the right word because, you know, after in the, in the aftermath of around 2008, 2009, a lot of clients really started to take a much more aggressive role in, in driving cost issues and, and therefore delivery issues. And I think as, as clients have looked at how services are delivered, technology becomes part of that equation. We've seen the rise of legal ops. Uh, and I'm, I can, I'm sure you've, you've talked about that in this program any number of times, but, you know, legal ops was either a non-existent or little known occupation uh, a decade ago. And, and now they are a driving force in uh, certainly how corporate legal is uh, consuming, uh, you know, buying legal services and, and what they're looking for in legal services. So I think I think the client on a certainly at the larger firm and corporate level has become critical in driving the conversation. And on the smaller firm level, that the same thing has happened, but in a different way. It's, it's simply that the clients have moved in the same direction we've all moved in, which is they're all on smart devices and they are all, you know, not seeing the need for why, why they should have to go into the office to meet with a lawyer when they can just meet by video or, or chat or whatever else. They're expecting their services providers to 
treat them the same way Amazon does or, or anybody else they do business with. And uh, so I, I think, again, that's driven uh, one of the huge trends over the last two years in particular has been the rise of e-payments, especially among law, smaller firms. And that's largely been driven by the fact that nobody wants to go write a check and go to the post office anymore. So right, that's right. Or they don't even have checks. Yeah. So take me out three years, five years, whatever period you're comfortable with. What does the delivery of legal services look like to you as you look at these trend lines and where you see the regulation going? Where do you see us being in five years? In five years, I, I think and the, the technology will continue to evolve. I don't think we're going to see huge changes in the technology over the next five years, but certainly it will continue to get better, get more automated. I think the biggest determining factor over what the delivery of legal services looks like over the next five years is really going to be this issue of regulatory reform. And I, and I do think we're going to hit a point when it's going to start to happen quickly. Although I, I said that about the duty of technology competence, and, and we still don't have all the states that have adopted that. But we're going to see legal services delivered in hybrid ways, meaning not just by law firms, not just by legal services organizations, but by private companies that are better at using technology to get legal help to people that are better at tailoring that legal help to the type of assistance the individual or business needs you know we've we've all heard the analogies to to the medical profession you know the the idea that uh, you you don't start with the surgeon uh, you you go in and you get examined and, and somebody decides what kinds of tests you might need and, and who's the right person to treat you initially. And, and maybe eventually you end up at the surgeon. But uh, I think the legal profession is going to look a whole lot more like that. And uh, it, it's going to be more of a, in the terms of the delivery, it's going to be more of a, a triage method that allows technology and services to be used in a way that overall results in hopefully a uh, Cost being services being delivered more suited to the problem and in a more affordable way. I think that's going to happen. Even I keep talking about the regulatory reform, but I I, I feel like it, it, it's already happening clearly. And the regulatory reform is a almost more of a speed bump than a barrier at this point. I think to to that happening. Absolutely. Well, we've we've run out of time. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed the conversation, Bob, and appreciate your time, your writings, and your observations on the profession. I've been a big part of what's driven change and adoption of technology. And I want to thank you uh, for that. And thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.